welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Murder, murder. So we are back in South Carolina. We're back in the South, and I promise you no bad accents this time, okay? So we are going back to a place called Low Country, South Carolina, and... This, this is a hot one. This is a hot one, and these are recent and dramatic, very tragic events having to do with the powerful Murdoch family, and this just reads like a Southern Gothic novel. The wealthy and powerful Murdoch family were thrown into the spotlight after the tragic events of February 24, 2019. This is awful. This is every parent's nightmare. These are six young people who headed out on a boat to go to an oyster bay in an island. The driver was drunk. As the driver goes out of control, so does the boat. It hits a piling. People are ejected from the boat. And a young woman named Mallory Beach gets thrown from the boat and isn't recovered until a week later. So there's some question as to at that time as to who the driver was. It appears more and more that the driver was Paul Murdoch who is the son, the scion of this powerful family, the Murdoch family. And then this case probably would have stayed local, but this case has just morphed into something really bizarre. Exactly, because on June 7, 2021, Paul Murdoch, and by this time he's been indicted on those voting charges, and his mother, Maggie, were gunned down in their family's hunting lodge. This is crazy, Sarah. They were found by Alec Murdoch, husband and father to the victims. Now he calls 911 and he, then he winds up calling some family, but he doesn't seem too concerned for his safety uh, and that maybe there's a shooter around. But you have to wonder who would want to kill this mother of two and young Paul. Uh, was it revenge? Was it someone from that tragic night of the boating incident? I think that's where a lot of the public's mind went. Who did this? Right, but this was also a powerful family that had, uh, you know, a law firm and had been involved in local government. Was it a disgruntled client? client? A client. Well, police set to work right away on this complex case. And as the investigation unfolded, there were more questions than answers. And if this case couldn't get even more bizarre and more convoluted, on September 4th, Alec Murdoch is shot. The father is shot. The patriarch is shot. And I don't know about you, my mind first went to, oh my God, is this further revenge? Blah, blah, blah. They're killing the family off. They're killing the family off. And no, it ends up being that he was embezzling 
millions of dollars from his law firm. And he actually hired an ex-client to make it look like a drive-by shooting. It was actually an assisted suicide. So this case has just gotten weirder and weirder. Now Alex Murdoch had just recently been asked to resign from his firm for embezzling money. This is a case which is just, it's like putting an octopus in a box. This week, we are so fortunate to be joined by Seton Tucker. Seton Tucker and Matt Harris have a hit podcast called The Murdoch Family Murders. And this is a podcast that has just exploded. So here to go through and unravel some of the mystery of this case, we are very grateful to have Seton Tucker on our podcast. Because we wanted to get this to you so quickly, because this is such a hot case, please be warned there are some audio issues in our recording with Seton, but enjoy the show. So welcome, Seton. What an honor. Oh, thanks for having me. Seton, I have to tell you, I have absolutely been obsessed with your podcast, and every time I see it pop up, I get so excited. It is just fabulous. Your updates on this case have been fantastic, and how did you and Matt come together? What's your backgrounds and how did you guys come together to create this awesome podcast? Okay. Well, actually I have been a stay at home mom for the last 16 years out of the workforce, but I became obsessed with the story after the Mallory beach boating accident in which she unfortunately died. And I just kind of started reading about it. I saw it. I grew up in that area. So I saw Facebook, please for her to be found alive, which unfortunately she wasn't, and kind of started going down the rabbit hole. And then I learned about the Murdoch family and other potential things that they, deaths that they were linked to, and reached out to one of those moms, Stephen Smith, who was a young man who was found dead in a road in Hampton County, reached out to her and kind of developed a Facebook relationship with her where we would kind of communicate back and forth. And I really wanted to do a podcast, but I was warned by a lot of people not to do this podcast because of how influential and powerful this family was. So then when Maggie and Paul were found dead, I was like, okay, if I'm ever going to do it, I need to do it. And I was having dinner with a friend who was actually married to Matt Harris. And Matt Harris is a local radio host here in Charlotte. So I was telling her about the story and she said, well, Matt's been wanting to do a true crime podcast. Wow. So we met at Starbucks and the rest was history. Oh, that's so cool. And you had a great story. It's a great story. And you guys have, your podcast has just blown up. You you don't have a history of journalism? No, I was an art history major in college. I was in marketing before kids. And so I don't have any sort of background in this. So It was all new to me, and we were just so surprised at the success. We thought maybe only our family and friends would listen. And then when we broke the Apple Top 20, we were like, holy cow, we couldn't believe it. Good for you. And you touched on something about the influence of the Murdoch family. It was so profound in that area that people, people actually sort of warned you to stay away from this case. So let's talk a little bit about the Murdoch family. And, you know, and who are they? Yeah. So if someone isn't as familiar, some of our listeners may not be as familiar with the case. So they were a family who was from the 14th circuit in South Carolina and They've been DAs, well, solicitors in South Carolina, but I think most people are more familiar with the term district attorney Mm -hmm. in the state for more than 80 years. Besides that, they also had a very, very successful private practice where they made lots of money actually suing South Carolina 
railroad companies and other stuff because there was a weird law in South Carolina where if an accident happened anywhere in the state, like, you know, you were driving, it, there was an example of a woman who was driving in upstate South Carolina, and then she had an accident somewhere else, and she was able to sue the tire company because they sold the tires in Hampton County. So it was just kind of a little loophole. And so Hampton being a very rural and impoverished community was shown to have much higher jury rewards than other places in the state. Then they've changed the law since then, so that's no longer the case, but for years they did. And they're, I mean, they're very successful and have helped a lot of people get justice for things that have happened to them. They were a very powerful family in a town with a pretty low median income, correct? Right. So they were, it's a real have and have not type of town. So the, the Murdochs were definitely haves. No. Oh, yeah, for sure. So can you talk about the fatal boating accident that occurred on uh, February 24th, 2019? Sure. So they were just a group of college kids who were traveling to an oyster roast on a boat, and they actually decided to go by boat because there were rumors that there was going to be a DUI checkpoint. So that's why they decided to travel by boat. So they go to an oyster roast, and they purchased some beer earlier in the day with some fake identification. and. I think some white claws and different things. And they traveled to the boat. And after the oyster roast, they decided, well, Paul, who was the one who was the alleged driver of the boat, but of course- And, this, and this, is, this is Paul Murdoch, who is the son of this sort of dynasty. Just drawing yeah, no. some context. No, here. thank you. Thank you for bringing it in because I'm so familiar with the story. I think sometimes I don't, <laughs> I don't tell, <laughs> tell all the facts. But so he was the owner of the boat and he was- the one who was allegedly driving the boat. So he wanted, after they left the Oyster Roast, to go to downtown Beaufort, my boat. And there was kind of a controversy. Only two of the boaters wanted to go and everyone else was ready to get home. It was late, it was cold, it was February. They went to Beaufort and they did some shots. On the way back, they actually almost ran into a sailboat and eventually hit a piling where Mallory Beach and Anthony were objected from the boat and she just didn't surface. And there's a lot of controversy about whether Paul was the exact, he was never convicted because he was killed before he was able to stand trial. There's a lot of controversy about who the driver of the boat was because at periods of time while they were traveling, and this is according to depositions, he left the helm because he was having an argument with his girlfriend who he bit on. It was seemed like it was a pretty they were all arguing. They weren't making a lot of times. It was late in the evening. And when he left the helm a few times, Connor took the helm. But and this, and this is Connor Cook. This is Connor Cook, who was also one of the passengers on the boat. And he is cousins with Anthony Cook, who was on the boat, who was dating Mallory Beach. There were three couples. It was kind of like a couple's night out. And this is the event that kind of obviously initially gets you interested in a lot of people. Oh, yeah. She Inter was such, interest is like the precipitous event. Right. Because you just, it, she was a young girl. She was 19. She was absolutely stunningly beautiful. So when you saw her picture, you were immediately captivated. Right. And exactly. And, you know, I know on your podcast, you played the 911 calls. I've heard the 911 calls. We can even play them here. And people were urging him not to drive. 
correct? Or that's what they say. And there's some that, controversy after the fact about this. Right. They, they, and I think that's pretty, everyone says in their depositions that they were urging Paul not to drive, but Paul was saying, I'm the driver. And he kind of had this, he was definitely not a good drunk. When he got drunk, he acted way different, I think, than he did the rest of the time. He had this kind of drunk alter ego called Timmy, which would come out when he drank a lot. And it, from all evidence, it seems like Timmy was definitely out that night. And in order to purchase the alcohol for this, he had used his brother's ID. Is that that's? Yes, he used his brother's ID. But one of the other boaters, um, Miley, had also had a fake ID that she used. So Paul wasn't the only one who used a fake ID that night. You know, when the authorities respond to this scene, they show up to this horrible accident. You've got you've had people really pretty significantly injured from the from the impact. Uh, you have one person missing and the, the person missing is Mallory Beach. You know, you don't have any any drunk tests or anything run on these on these on these boaters. So why is that? Well, they so there's a lot of controversy about this. And there's actually a lawsuit that has been filed by Connor Cook, who was the other one that he's saying that was kind of being set up as the driver. Um, but there were multiple agencies. It seemed like there was a, it was a pretty confusing scene because there were multiple agencies that responded. You had Beaufort County Sheriff's Department. You had Port Royal Sheriff's Department. You had SLED. You also had South Carolina Department of Natural Resources, who were ultimately in charge of the investigation because it was a boating accident. And, you know, when questioned about these in depositions, you know, one says, I, you know, we, we got, we weren't sure who the driver was, which did seem like there was confusion because no one was saying who the driver was. None of the kids were talking really at this point. And I think that could have been because they were advised to not talk, but they took a blood alcohol test from Connor, but they didn't get one from Paul. So that was, but he got one at the hospital. So we do know that his blood alcohol level, I think it was like over three times the legal limit, but that was taken at the hospital once they got there because he was needing to be checked out from this accident. What surprised me about listening to the, uh, all the audio from the accident was how the law enforcement really treated them all like victims, even though one of them obviously was driving the boat. And I just feel like had they been different people, they wouldn't have been treated. One of them would have been treated like a perpetrator and not, or all of them might've been treated like perpetrators in a different circumstance, not knowing who the driver was. Well, there's definitely seemed like there were some, like maybe protocols were not. I mean, there's also a lot of controversy about the fact that there weren't recorded interviews when DNR was investigating. So that is a big controversy. We do have some audio from Anthony Cook from the dash cam of the Beaufort County Sheriff's Department vehicle that he was sitting in the back of. And Anthony, again, is Mal Mallory's, boyfriend. Right. And even the police officer who's saying, you know, are you sure it was Paul? Was it, could it have been Connor? It's like, they're kind of trying to manipulate the story, which leads me to believe right there, you're creating reasonable doubt for a trial. I mean, no matter what happened, had this gone to trial, there would be reasonable, there's doubt there. Yeah. I think if anyone is honest, if you look back through all of the statements and you look, there definitely was confusion and doubt and whether that was orchestrated by Alec Murdoch or somebody else, we don't know the answer to that question. And I think we're going to have to wait to see what happens with Connor Cook's lawsuit to find out. So when all these kids go to the hospital, that's a good point. Alec Murdoch and I believe his, is it his father? It was, yeah, 
It was, and Alec Murdoch and Randolph Murdoch, who was actually uh, Paul's grandfather, show up at the hospital. And and they shut down any interviews. It's, you know. If you look at all the statements from the nurses, there are multiple, and the security guard from the hospital, they all say that they felt like he was shutting it down. He, you know, he was approaching Connor Cook, who had sustained a pretty significant jaw injury and had to go to another hospital, bigger hospital to get treatment and surgery. You know, he was approaching him in the hallway and they're saying he's telling them he was trying to get into Paul's then girlfriend, Morgan's room and kind of tell her what to say. And the nurse actually kept him out of her room. This all happens. And why does it take two months for Paul to get indicted for this? There was a lot. People were really upset in the community that it took so long. But we actually had a lawyer on our podcast who was a former district attorney in Charlotte talk about that. And he said he didn't really find that that was that unusual, especially with multiple agencies. There was a lot of investigation to have to happen. She wasn't found till seven days later. So there was a delay between when the accident occurred and when her body was found. So he didn't actually find that that was that unusual. And so this would have remained probably a real local case, right? It would have really stayed in South Carolina if not for the events of June 7th, 2021. So can you describe to our listeners what happened that night? I think that it was starting to gain momentum. There have been a lot of great reporters who've been reporting on this and an article that came out in the state paper about the influence of the Murdoch family. So I kind of think that even without that, there was a lot of rumbling, especially in the state. Maybe it might not have become as national of a story, but definitely everyone in the state of South Carolina was talking about it. But on June 7th, Maggie Murdoch, who was Alec Murdoch's wife and Paul's mother and Paul, the son of Alec, were both found shot to death in their hunting property. It was a hunting lodge and they actually lived there. Okay. And so this is when the story just went bananas. And like, this is when I saw the story and just went, this is like some Southern John Grisham, like crazy stuff, because this was just... We weren't sure if it was retaliation from the Beach family or nobody knew what it was. Oh, yeah. Point. I mean, that's when I was like, okay, I'm going to sell it because this can't get any crazier. Right. Absolutely. So let's talk about the crime scene and what happened there. Now, I think I read there were two weapons. Two different kinds of bullets that were found, correct? Which means two different types of guns used in the in the murder. Of- right. So there were two, there was a shotgun and an assault rifle. And we don't know, we sled the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division has not released many details other than that there were two weapons. One was an assault rifle and one was a just another rifle or another a shotgun. So that makes you think probably two two shooters. Two shooters. So it and we just don't know. And also there we know that this was a hunting property. So chances are there were guns there. So we don't know if those were guns used from their property or if those were guns from someone else. Here's a brief excerpt from the 911 call that night. Connor County Communication. Carlson, I have an Alex Murdoch on the line, caller from 4147 Mosel Road. He's advising that his wife and child was shot. Okay, and sir, give me the address again. It's 4147 Mosel Road. I've been up to it now. It's bad. Okay. So what I found interesting about that weekend is that from what I took from your podcast is that Paul didn't have a really regular schedule to where he slept. Like he couch surfed and he had an apartment and they had different homes. 
just seems to me that in order to know where Paul was that weekend, you'd probably have to know his schedule because he doesn't seem like he had a real regular schedule. I found so that my kind question of about that, though. I mean, there have been lots of talk about who was the target. You know, the, the law enforcement has said that there is no threat to public safety. So if Paul didn't have a regular schedule, was he supposed to be there or was he not supposed to be there or was someone following him? We just we don't know the answer to that question, whether if this was targeted, was the person targeting Maggie or was the person targeting Paul? Right. And did Maggie have her? I mean, it just seemed like they had several homes and kind of. Yeah, they had a beach home. And I think that they split time between the two. I know Maggie on her Facebook page had said she had moved to Edisto, which is where their beach home was. It's not too far away, but the grandfather who actually died several days after they were shot was obviously very ill since he died several days. So it could be that they were back there because he was ill and that was close to where he was. Oh, yeah. And that Sarah, ma- that's a good point. Yeah. Sarah made a good point that when Alex discovers the bodies, he doesn't seem to have any fear for himself. He doesn't run in to grab a weapon, you know, and Sarah brought that to my attention today. I I, I had heard that. I, I can't. Yeah, I, 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 mean, I won't take credit for that. I had, I had no, heard that I, along the way. It actually struck me. We, we talked about that, too. When I listened to the 911 tape, he does obviously seem very distraught, but he doesn't seem fearful for himself. And I mean, I guess I've never been in a situation that I've come home and seen my child and my spouse dead. So I don't know how I would react, but it, it did strike me as well that he doesn't appear like, oh my gosh, could somebody be still here and they might shoot me? Right. Yeah, there could be a I mean, sniper in the uh, right there, like in, in the run, woods, right, you know, it's and dark go. and clearly from the 911 tape, he's walking around, you hear the dogs barking, you hear car door opening, you, he's walking around. It's not like he's staying in one place and taking shelter. So I had a question, Seton. Do we know if um, they were insured? That's the big question. We don't know if they were insured. That has not, has not come out. And I think a lot of people considering what we'll probably talk about next, are wondering what the insurance situation was on Maggie and Paul. What are your theories about what are behind these two murders? You know, I've seen so many different theories and I can be convinced of a lot of them, but I think the biggest thing is follow the money and then we're going to get the answers. Okay. Okay. So let's talk about the next big development and then we can talk talk about the money. So, well, so the Stephen Smith case gets reopened and then that kind of comes up into the public awareness. Stephen Smith was a young man from Hampton. He was actually in school to be a nurse and he was found dead in the middle of the road at the 911 call was placed around 4 a.m. And his mother has been beating the drum to find answers about this because she never believed it was a hit and run. She believes it could potentially have happened because he was a homosexual and that that's why he was targeted. So when he was first found, he had like a nine inch gaping wound on his head. And the initial responders thought that it could potentially be a gunshot wound. That's what the initial, when the coroner got there, um, he was sent to MUSC, which is the medical university in Charleston, for an autopsy. And the pathologist revealed that she believed it to be a hit and run, which nobody else thought it was a hit and run. The first coroner, the investigator. So because of that, it actually fell under the South Carolina Highway Patrol to investigate because the pathologist ruled that it was a hit and run. But there was no road debris. There was nothing. He said there was nothing consistent with it being a hit and run. He believed it to be a murder. 
And he has maintained that actually recently he's reiterated that. And Stephen Smith's case was recently reopened because of information they found during their investigation of Maggie and Paul's death, which no one knows what that information is. They don't, didn't say evidence. I actually said that wrong on our podcast at first and someone pointed it out. I was like, well, yeah, you're right. So what could it have been that they found that led them to reopen the case? So this is another mystery within the mystery. So we're waiting to see what information they found that was so compelling about the Stephen Smith case during their investigation of Paul and Maggie's murder that has to reopen a case is a big deal. Right, especially a case which was from 2015. The Murdoch name had come up during the Stephen Smith. It had come up multiple times, but there just was not enough evidence to definitively link them to his case. Now, do we think that maybe there was a connection between Paul's brother Buster and Stephen Smith, or could there have been a connection there? And maybe they found out something about that? That's possible. Sandy, actually, Stephen had confided in his twin sister that he was having a relationship with somebody in a powerful family. She never names it. To this day, Sandy has not come out and said the Murdoch name just because probably she's scared and doesn't want to get sued. That's the story behind it. They were mentioned in multiple reports, but there was not enough evidence. And I think at that time, people were kind of scared to talk. Interesting. That'll be a development that's we can't wait to listen to your podcast about that development. I know. I know. That's the one. That one. Well, that and their housekeeper, who another death that was linked. But that's the one that really gets me. And I'm really just hoping for justice for his family. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And the housekeeper, we can just mention that she had passed away prior to any of this happening to an accidental death in the home. Right. So in 2018, there was a slip and fall accident that occurred at the Murdoch home, and there was an insurance settlement. And we actually had, which I think it was our best episode and most infuriating episode on our podcast, we had the attorney representing her sons. Yeah, that was a great episode. Yeah, it was very infuriating. It just blew my mind because initially in the court filings, it looked like there was a settlement for $500,000, but it was actually $4 million. And the sons were not made aware of any of the proceedings in court, and they also have not received a dime. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Terrible. Terrible. So I bring all this up kind of to lead us up to kind of the next event that's going to happen and what's been maybe weighing on Alec Murdoch's mind going into the next big event, and that is Alec being shot in the head, which I think shocked all of us when that happened. I mean, you must have really been shocked when that happened. Oh my gosh, I was driving, I was driving, we were going to the South Carolina football game and I was driving and my phone just started blowing up. Everybody was calling me and I'm getting tired. I can't read because I'm driving. And (laughs) I just was literally having a heart attack. I called Matt and he was at the beach with his family and I was like, have you heard? He was like, no, what? And so I, I think that day pretty much blew our minds as well as probably everyone in this state. Oh, I actually was thinking of you that day. It was Sarah's birthday. And I remember looking at my phone, just thinking, oh, this story couldn't, it literally can't get any crazier. So initially we think this is a drive, but he's, I mean, it never sounded like a drive by, but he's saying he's changing a tire and he gets shot. And then the story quickly changes. And we now know it's a suicide for hire. Well, that's what he says, but. 
Smith, who was the person who Alec is saying he hired to help him commit suicide so that he could get this $10 million worth of life insurance for his son, he doesn't agree with that version of stories. Oh, this is a Curtis Edward Smith, who yeah. allegedly was hired to shoot Alec to make it look like a drive-by right. shooting. And so what's his version of this? His, his version is kind of that Alec had told him he needed some help. He thought that he was having car difficulties. He went there. Alec is waving this gun around. The gun goes off during this confusion. And then he takes the gun. He drives away and disposes it somewhere. Okay. That doesn't sound very... <laughs> I mean, and also, also prior to this, so Alec, isn't Alec fired from his law firm right. for day, misappropriation of funds? I mean... The day before. The day yeah. before he, he was... He says he resigned. I don't know if he was, if they allowed him to resign. If I, but anyway, he has this conversation. I think the New York Times said he was pushed out. So anyway, he had this conversation. He's leaving the law firm. And that happened just the very day. And he's since then, well, obviously now he's in jail, but his law license has been suspended because of this investigation. Let's talk about the money. Where was all this money going? Because I know he says he has an opiate addiction, but I don't think an opiate addiction accounts for that much money. No, I mean, it's been reported <laughs> that millions of dollars is, is missing, and I don't think it's yeah. possible to still be alive. And No, okay. it's, uh, yeah, I've known some opiate addicts. You can't spend that much money on, I mean, it's. I just don't think, right. So yeah, that's I mean, the million dollar question is, yeah. where is this money? And I think that's where we're going to find all of the answers. And I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. Because, I mean, obviously he was living above his means or obviously doing more than that, spending it. Maybe he owed some people some money. I mean, it's it's very interesting. Do you have any theories on, on any of this? You know, I, my mind has been so blown. I actually really don't. Everything in this case has been so incredibly wild and crazy than I can ever imagine that I just don't know. I mean, I wonder if there's some offshore accounts. I've thought about that sort of drug involvement. I've thought about that. But again, I don't really have a theory because I just don't know. Does this throw shade on the murders of Maggie and Paul? If what we know now about what Alec Murdoch is sort of capable of, this mystery about who killed Maggie and Paul Murdoch still oh, really lingers he says he turned himself in so that he could take the focus off of the investigation of his suicide attempt so that they could focus on finding the killers of maggie and paul what is really interesting and a kind of a bird's eye view of this case and the murdochs you've got this family that since 1920 has been incredibly influential in this part of South Carolina, which is Hampton, South Carolina, or low country, right? So you can't have that kind of power and influence, I think, in a, in a fairly economically hurting place and, and not incur some enemies, right? And, and not incur both the influence and the enemies that come with that kind of thing. That's the sense about the Murdoch family that I get. So in looking at the murders of Maggie and Paul, there could be people who just didn't like this family three generations back. You've got, no, I mean, you know there what I mean? People they sent to jail. I mean, they definitely, there was no shortage of enemies. I mean, they had people as prosecutors that were sent to jail. There yeah. were also businesses that were sued or, you know, clients that maybe didn't like the outcome of their court cases. You know, there's definitely, yeah. plus, you know, we have 
these other deaths that we just talked about that were linked to the family. And I mean, what better way to get away with a murder when there's so many suspects? I'm thinking outside of the box with this one, but I'm thinking if if you were someone who had a grudge against this family, you have kind of, you're covered in some weird way, you know, if you go and try to and perpetrate this double homicide. I think one of the things that intrigued us about the case is, that, and we've seen this in many of our cases, they're kind of like Kennedys of the South to me. I mean, we've seen this in Chappaquiddick. We've seen this in uh, one of our cases with the Woodwards, where you see these influential people kind of come in and control the narrative with law I enforcement. But, you know, we see, and I, that's one of the things that interests us, I think, is just these powerful families coming in, controlling the narrative with law enforcement, using their power to change things around and get out of things. And this is so clear here that this, this is happening. So we really like to want to, we were, it's very interesting. And I really commend you for trying to get to the bottom of this and find out the truth. So you don't have any predictions about what's going to happen next? Well, I think that there's going to be a lot of uh, fallout, I think, just in the state in general with other lawyers who may potentially be connected and some of the things that have happened with the mishandling of funds, um, potentially judges. I think that we're going to see the legal world in South Carolina is really going to be shaken up from this. But I just hope for all the families who have lost people, including the Murdoch family, that they get answers for these cases so, so how can our listeners find you on social media on, on, uh, if they have any, have any questions? You can find me on Facebook, Seton Tucker, and you can also, we actually just started our Facebook page, which is called Murdoch podcast and also on Instagram. And also you can listen to it where the Murdoch family murders impact of influence on Apple podcasts, Spotify, and a bunch of other ones. Cool. I encourage everyone to, you'll binge this in like, a day, like you'll binge this in a day and then listen again. This is how good this podcast is. It's fantastic. Well, and we're going to post this on our page, uh, our Facebook group, and just encourage everyone to listen to this. It's so good. And you get so many questions. You have to listen again to try to get the details. Absolutely. It's a complicated case. Seton, yeah. it's been a total pleasure. We'll let you go. We know you're, we know what it's like to be a mom. A mom. <laughs> and I just, I, you're so fabulous. I hope that this, you go really far with this story. You totally deserve it. Thank you very, very much. Murder, murder, murder.